Manuel Locatelli finally gets his move to Juventus. Marin Odegaard is back at the Emirates, and Jesse March's Leipzig looks very, 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 very fun. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to the podcast, the pilot episode of the Tactics Room presented by Breaking the Lines, the football podcast where we discuss the why and the how in football instead of just the what. My name is Will Fowler. I'm your host. I'm the one standing at this metaphorical tactics board, breaking our topics down. So that also means that uh, that I'm the one that you can shout at on Twitter if I say something you disagree with. Hopefully you don't have to, but uh, if you do, you know who to call. So if you're new to this podcast, um, well, you, you are. You would be because it's the first episode. So to everybody listening to this podcast, uh, before we, we jump in and, and get into the, the real meat and potatoes of, of what we're talking about, um, I want to take a couple minutes to just explain what this is and what it's supposed to be. Because you may have stumbled across this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, on Twitter, wherever, and, and initially thought, oh, great, it's another football podcast. It's another podcast of some random kid I'd never met who's about to give some half-hearted opinion, some of it true, some of it false. Um, and that's exactly what I'm trying to avoid with this podcast. The purpose of the Tactics Room is to take a bit of a deeper dive into some of the big questions in the football world. I don't want to just talk about the, the same surface-level news that you can find on page one of Google or any blog or any podcast or whatever. I want this to be a little bit different. For example, I don't just want to talk about how Harry Kane wants to move to Manchester City. I'd rather talk about who the ideal replacements would be tactically in the Spurs team, or how would Harry Kane fit into the Spurs, fit into the Manchester City eleven if that move were to happen? That kind of stuff. I'd rather, I'd rather sit down and and discuss the more the 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 deeper storylines than just go after the the same clickbaity surface level stuff. So that's the point of this podcast is to to kind of take a deeper dive and, and focus on things in a more um, advanced tactical setting as opposed to just the, the raw opinion on some of the biggest stories in the football world. Um, so the way that this will be structured is every show will have a couple of topics. Each topic will have one main question and one bottom line. The question is where the analysis stems from. That's where the discussion will, will take place. And the bottom line is just one or two sentences to answer the question that sums everything up. So we'll go qu- topic, question, a few minutes kind of breaking things down tactically, and then the bottom line is where we'll, we'll wrap everything up in case you zoned out for a couple minutes or if you just wanted to skip to the end to find out. If, if you're if you're one of those people who, who reads a book and jumps straight to the last chapter, you know you can do that at this podcast. Just jump ahead to the bottom line. Um, it might make more sense when you hear it in practice, so for that reason, we'll jump straight in. The big topic for today is uh, a recent transfer deal. It's one that... that has been linked pretty consistently and pretty heavily since the Euros. But we weren't sure if it was going to get done this window. It has, as of a couple days ago at the time of recording, Manuel Locatelli is on his way to Juventus. So if you watched the European Championships um, over the summer, as more specifically if you watched Italy play at the European Championships over the summer, you more than likely took specific notice of Manuel Locatelli, because this is a player who, 12 months ago, unless you're a really, really involved Serie A fan, you likely didn't know who Manuel Locatelli was. He was a midfielder, came through Milan's academy, was playing at Sassuolo, who are in a club that that pretty traditionally play in, in Europe and European football. So if you weren't really into the week by week of Serie A, the Euros was your first real exposure to Manuel Locatelli as a player. And so to discuss how 
how Lucatelli fits into this Juventus 11 and what kind of place he'll have. I think the first place to start is to to just briefly go over it and understand what kind of player Lucatelli is. What skill set does he bring to this Juventus side? And we ran a, a player profile on Lucatelli a few months back, uh, Breaking the Lions did. It was written by Vito Doria. Um, in an article, and we'll, and we'll link that in, in the likely in the tweet, and we'll link that in the description as well, that goes over, goes over Locatelli's uh, upbringing through the Milan Academy, of course, and then his loan deal to Sassuolo, and then what kind of player he is. Um, this is a player, Emmanuel Locatelli, who has not suddenly burst onto the scene. This is a player who was looked at as somebody who could be the future of the Italian national team for a long, long time because he did come through AC Milan's academy, which is one of the finest in Italy. He was an AC Milan youth player, and he actually made his senior-level debut with AC Milan in 2016-2017. Of course, obviously, he didn't truly cement a place in the first team because he moved to Sassuolo after the 2017-2018 season, but the potential was always there. That was never in doubt, uh, but the potential wasn't something that was fully tapped into until his move to Sassuolo. It was initially a loan deal after the 2017-2018 season, and then following his first year at Sassuolo, it was made permanent. And the reason why that's when the potential was unlocked for Manuel Locatelli is because Roberto De Zerbi at, at Sassuolo, he used a bunch of different shapes with this Sassuolo side. He used 3-4-3, 4-3-3, 4-3-3-1, did a whole bunch of things with Sassuolo. But one of the only consistents was Manuel Locatelli in the team. De Zerbi viewed Locatelli as a key contributor, and even while changing his shapes and tactics from seemingly week to week to week, Locatelli was always a consistent in the team. Um, in his debut season with Sassuolo, two goals, four assists in that 2017-2018 season, five assists in 2019-2020, and then four goals and two assists in 2020-2021. And that development, that exponential development, is largely thanks to De Zerbi at Sassuolo and his willingness to, to insert this young player, this largely unproven young player, into the team right away. Of course, he developed into one of Italy's finest midfielders, and because of that, he earned a place in the Italian national team squad uh, for the Euros, but that is where a lot of people were first fully exposed to Locatelli as a player, because he wasn't the seventh or eighth midfielder in the team. He was, I mean, he was starting. He was starting matches for Italy at the beginning of the group stage with Marco Verratti's injury. It was Jorginho, who was a borderline world-class midfielder. It was Nicolo Barella at Inter Milan, who is another one of, of Italy's emerging midfielders. And it was Locatelli playing alongside both of them. And I think that's when a lot of players, a lot of people, excuse me, were first fully, first fully were introduced to Locatelli as a player. Because he is a fantastic, fantastic player. He was one of the best players in the group stage. And then once Marco Verratti came back, came back and he, he was he was fully fit, he obviously took back his place in the midfield. Um, but Locatelli still was a key contributor off the bench. I think he played in, in every single one of Italy's matches from match day one up until the final when they beat England. Um, he played an important role, a crucial role. And a lot of people who, who were watching the Euros may not have known who he was, and then by the time Italy had, had lifted the trophy, they knew they knew about Memo Locatelli. So that's some backstory on Memo Locatelli. That's a little bit about his past and how, what got him to, to where he is now. But what kind of player actually is Memo Locatelli? What is he bringing to this Juventus team? And again, you can find all of this in our player profile that we ran on Locatelli a few months back. Um, but arguably, his best attribute, his biggest trait, is just the way that, that he passes the ball so, so efficiently. He completes... Close to 88% of his passes, he can ping them at any different at any distance. But a, a lot of times we talk about a player who who can pass efficiently, and that means that there isn't 
as 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 much creativity. There isn't. It isn't as daring. It, it's it's a lot of, of sideways and backwards. That is not the case with with Memo Locatelli. A lot of times, high passing completion percentages can be misleading. Not with Locatelli. Locatelli is a a fine fine passer of the ball. He's just as as creative and daring as he is efficient. His progressive passing numbers are fantastic, and that's why that's how we know that that 88% pass completion number is not misleading or or a standalone stat. Um, 8.3 progressive passes per 90, that's 98th percentile among all midfielders in the last year. 9.02 passes into the final third per 90, that's also 98th percentile among all midfielders. 1.28 key passes per 90 is 80th percentile. 87 passes attempted per 90 shows how involved he is, and that's 98th percentile among all midfielders. So not only is he efficient, not only is he progressive, but he boasts the ability, and he we've seen it at Sassuolo and to an extent with Italy as well. He is the type of midfielder that is extremely, extremely comfortable and calm and is able to dictate games from midfield. Because this is a player in Locatelli who, who at times, you know, he plays at times as a defensive midfielder for Sassuolo. He's a player who will, will be the deepest of the three midfielders. At Italy, we saw him play off to the left with Jorginho in that holding role. But Locatelli can play anywhere. And he'll thrive no matter where he's put into this Juventus midfield. He's also a very progressive dribbler. He's just a progressive player, Memo Locatelli. He's a player who, who, his whole mindset, the way he thinks and the way he sees the game is, let me receive the ball in the defensive third and find a way to get it into the attacking third. That, that's his, his main priority. And you can see that with, with the way he plays, but also just, just with his numbers. A very progressive dribbler, 5.9 progressive carries per 90. That's 83rd percentile among all midfielders in the last year. And for a player that usually sits deep, again, this is somebody who, who by trade is a deep-lying playmaker, but also when he's not playing in that deepest midfield role, he'll play as uh, one of the two number eights in the midfield three. But still, his heat maps, he does like to sit a bit deeper. But for a player who sits there, he creates plenty of chances. 2.68 shot-creating actions per 90, that's 83rd percentile among midfielders, and 0.31 goal-creating actions per 90 is 76th percentile. And that's made even more impressive when you realize this is a Sassuolo side that does not score in bunches. So being 76 percentile in goal-creating actions for a side that's not scoring five goals a match is uh, an impressive, impressive rate. Out of possession, Locatelli calm, capable at winning the ball back, and he is a very good one-on-one defender, it should be said, at least by by a midfielder standard. Doesn't get taken on a whole lot one-on-one, but when he does, he has a high success rate at, at dispossessing players running at him. 44.6% of his dribblers tackled, which is 93rd percentile. So this is the kind of player who, who if you're familiar with football reference, um, uh, the, that, that, the, this, the football slash soccer version of that family of sports reference accounts, um, you look at Memo Locatelli's scouting report, which, by the way, is a new feature that they added just a few months ago, and it's it's fantastic. It is it is a godsend, and I strongly, strongly recommend to anybody who's looking to get into the tactical side of the game. You look at Locatelli's, and it's green, 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 green. It's all green bars because he's 90th, 95th percentile in virtually everything. For Locatelli, the biggest thing that we need to know about him, and that I'm sure you've probably drawn the conclusion about already, if you didn't know it prior to, to listening to this episode, he's just he's an extremely involved midfielder, can orchestrate a midfield. And his ability to 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 receive the ball when the game just slows down. It seems like everything is moving in slow motion when he's got the ball at his feet. We saw it with Italy. You can see it when you go back and watch some matches of his at Sassuolo. I assume we'll see it when he plays for Juventus. So calm and composed, the match slows down when he's on the ball. 
a fantastically talented midfielder who I don't think will have a whole lot of difficulty breaking into this Juventus eleven. So that's a bit about Locatelli as a player, about what he brings and, and the kind of midfielder that he is. But now let's dive into the actual question, which is, how does he fit? Because this is a Juventus side that had its holes a season ago. They finished 13 points off Inter Milan, who won the league. They barely squeaked into the top four. They were in a Europa League place as late as the 37-38th match day. So how does a player like Locatelli fit into this Juventus side? And truthfully, it's a tough question to answer because we don't fully know how Max Allegri will line up this version of Juventus. This is a, a side that Andrea Pirlo a season ago used a lot of 4-4-2 with Ronaldo and Alvaro Morata as the striker pairing. But Allegri, when he was with Juventus for, for those few years prior, played a lot in a 4-3-3, played a lot in a 4-3-3-1, occasionally played in a 4-4-2, played in a 3-5-2. That was one of his, his calling cards, was his ability to to shift and tweak and do things differently. So we don't fully know how Allegri will line up with this Juventus side. And so as a byproduct of that, we don't know what Locatelli's role will fully be. But I do think, for what it's worth, we'll see one of two things with Allegri's Juventus, at least at the start. And the first is an unchanged from Pirlo 4-4-2 with Ronaldo and Dybala as a striker duo. And then either Federico Chiesa on, on the left or the right with, with Weston McKenney, who played a lot of times as a right midfielder, Federico Bernadeschi. Um, this Juventus side has no shortage of players who can play as wide midfielders. So that 4-4-2 is something that, that Allegri can use. Even if it's not going to end up being his primary formation, it's something that he can use at least at the start to keep the players familiar with what they've been doing. Of course, that also gives Juventus the the... The flexibility to transition to a 4-3-3 mid-match. Of course, if you've got Chiesa or Bernadeschi, those are players who are are by trade midfielders but have no problem with playing on one of the wings of an attacking three. And you've got Ronaldo, who's comfortable on the left, and Morata, who can play as a center forward. Um, but the other thing that we could see is more Allegri's Juventus as opposed to Pirlo's Juventus, which is a 4-3-3 slash 4-2-3-1 that, again, Allegri used a lot in his first stint with Juventus. Ronaldo on the wing, and then either Avaro Morata or Paolo Dybala playing in that center forward role, which, truthfully, Dybala re reclaiming that role would not surprise me because Allegri loved him when, uh, when they were together at Juventus. Chiesa on the right, and then a three-man midfield. The good news for Locatelli and Locatelli fans is that I think he fits into both teams just fine. We talk about that 4-4-2. The only two places that Locatelli can play in in that shape realistically are those two central midfield roles, the ones that are playing in the middle alongside uh, Chiesa and theoretically McKenney, because that's my U.S. men's national team propaganda is McKenney over uh, Bernadeschi over on the right. Um, but Locatelli is a player who, who can slide into that number eight role and play just fine. I think his game is one that, that benefits from a 4-3-3 a bit more, but again, Locatelli does virtually everything well aside from finished chances inside the six-yard box, and that's fine because he's he's never there. Realistically, in that 4-3-3, you probably pair Locatelli with a player like Adrian Rabio, somebody who's a bit more defensive-minded, who can tuck in when, when Juventus are in possession, can drop in in front of the center backs, allow Locatelli to, to maybe move forward a bit, a player who obviously Locatelli is a bit more more skilled and comfortable on the ball than Rabio is. And playing him alongside Rabio gives him that freedom because, you know, he has he has less defensive responsibility now. He does have a bit more freedom and creativity to get forward, find space, and pull strings a little bit closer to goal. The player who was in that role last season was Rodrigo Bentancur. And that's what makes things difficult, I think, for Max Allegri is statistically 
Locatelli and Bentancur are similar players. They share much of the same skill set. Bentancur is a player who also very efficient passer, somewhat progressive passer, but doesn't do as much specifically with the ball at his feet charging forward. That's where Locatelli has the edge over Bentancur. Of course, Locatelli is is a bit more comfortable out of possession as well. He's he 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 puts in a few more tackles than Bentancur does. So that's why I think Locatelli, the, the, the big question, honestly, for me is not where does he fit into this Juventus 11? Because I think he fits just fine. The question for me is who does he displace? Who loses their spot in the 11? And I think the answer to that question is Rodrigo Bentancur. But it's a difficult question to answer for the reason being uh, Bentancur is not some some 28-year-old, 29-year-old, uh, 15-million-euro-valued midfielder. He is 24 valued at the same price as Locatelli in terms of of of, uh, of player values on transfer market and he's ascending as well so it's it's a, a difficult situation that Max Allegri is in because you've got two players who are who are really pretty similar and, and one was just brought in who has massive expectations but the other player also is, has is relatively young and has massive expectations so I think Locatelli eventually takes Bentancur's place in the Juventus 11 don't know if it happens right away um, but again, like I said, I think Locatelli fits better in this Juventus team as part of a 4-3-3 or 4-2-3-1. And I do hope that that's what Allegri chooses to go back to. A, because I think a 4-4-2 is, is somewhat outdated. But B, because that, that 4-3-3, 4-2-3-1, it allows Locatelli to play as part of a double pivot, but not as, as the sole creator. You play in a 4-2-3-1 with Locatelli as part of that pivot. You've got a player like Evan Ramsey or, or what would really be interesting is Pelo Dybala in that number 10 role. Uh, and then Locatelli can keep that that space deep. He can retain that that deep-lying playmaker role and still be able to create chances. I think ultimately, whether it's a 4-4-2 or a 4-3-3 or a 4-2-3-1, whatever Max Allegri chooses to do with this version of Juventus, Locatelli will sooner rather than later be in the team and play a role. And that role will more than likely be sitting a bit deeper, progressing the ball, not needing to do as much defensively as he did at Sassuolo because of the presence of Adrian Rabio, and just being able to be that that on-the-ball playmaker, that deep-lying playmaker who can progress the ball and get the ball into the final third to to the players in this event side who are a bit more comfortable in front of goal, to the Ronaldos, obviously, but to the the Dybalas and the Moratas and the Chiesas, who I think is not related to the question, but I think Chiesa is going to have a fantastic, fantastic season, and that could largely be in part to what Memo Locatelli does in midfield. So the bottom line here uh, in terms of Memo Locatelli to Juventus and the question being how does he fit into the Juventus 11, the bottom line for me is that Locatelli will fit the Juventus system regardless of shape. That's just the kind of player that Locatelli is. He can thrive as a, a central midfielder in virtually any system, even if that's as, as a number six or a number eight, Locatelli will be just fine. That's the, the, the bigger question for me is figuring out who he replaces because... I think the obvious answer is, again, Rodrigo Bentancur, but I think you can also make the case that that maybe it's Rabiot who loses out. Maybe it's a player like McKennie who loses out. I can't imagine Locatelli playing wide, um, but Rabiot can play wide. He played wide with France. So maybe McKennie loses out or Bernadeschi loses out. Rabiot goes to play wide in a 4-4-2, and you've got a midfield pairing of Bentancur and, and Locatelli. Um, that's not something that I think we know the answer to yet. I think we'll find out the answer very, very soon. But that's the bottom line for me, is it's, it's, Locatelli will fit just fine. It's more a matter of who loses out. 
So that's the big story, Mamma Locatelli. And, and the way that these episodes will go is there'll always be one big story that, that we spend most of our time on. And today, of course, that was Locatelli. We spend 15, 20 minutes kind of breaking down who he is and, and how he fits and whatnot. That's the big story. But every episode will also have two or three more minor stories, not ones that are going to get the same amount of attention, but ones that I still want to, to bring up and talk about because they did make the news headlines and they are still important. Uh, and the next one that, that I wanted to bring up and discuss is a move that, that occurred in the Premier League. And it comes from North London. Martin Odegaard is back at Arsenal. Of course, he spent the latter half of the 2020-2021 season at the Emirates on loan from Real Madrid. But he went back to Madrid over the summer because they couldn't put a, per, a permanent deal in place. That permanent deal has been put in place. So Odegaard heading back to Arsenal without having played a, a regular game, a, a regular season game, excuse me, with Real Madrid in between Arsenal stints. Odegaard is back. My question is not how does Odegaard fit into this Arsenal team because, well, it's repetitive, first of all, but also I think there's more interesting angles to discuss this from. The question that I'm interested in is how will this Arsenal be different from the 2020-2021 version of Arsenal that saw Odegaard in it? Because although it's only been a few months, it's only been, I mean, what, the season ended in May and now it's August. It's only been three months. But this is a different Arsenal team. And, and there's two reasons. One of them is is relatively minor in the form of Albert Sambi-Lakonga. It seems like like um, uh, Mikel Arteta, I don't know why I forgot Mikel Arteta's name for a second. But it seems like Mikel Arteta is very high on Sambi-Lakonga. He started uh, Arsenal's Premier League opener against Brentford. Um but the second reason and the bigger reason why this Arsenal is different from, from the 2020-2021 Arsenal is Emil Smith-Rowe has emerged from last year being a, a top youth prospect, a player who, who could develop into something really, really special and who is starting to develop into something really, really special to a player now who is, I, I, I would say he's borderline undroppable in this Arsenal team. A, because of, of the youth he provides, the fact that he's an academy graduate, but he was one of Arsenal's only good players against Brentford in the season opener. It was him, it was Kieran Tierney, and we saw their class exude for the full 90 minutes in a match where there wasn't much to write home about for Arsenal. Emil Smith-Rowe was fantastic. And the reason why that makes things difficult is both of those players, Martin Odegaard and Emil Smith-Rowe, play best as number 10s. They're two creative players who like to get into the final third, and we don't see a whole lot of teams that play with two traditional number 10s. Even Manchester City. We talk about a team, oh, could you imagine a midfield with Jack Raylish and Kevin De Bruyne in it? Well, say a prayer for the third midfielder, for the love of God. Say a prayer for the guy who is taking on all of the defensive responsibility now because you've got De Bruyne and Jack Raylish streaking into the penalty area, getting wide, putting crosses in, leaving the center of the park open. So even Manchester City, I don't think we're going to see that Graylish-De Bruyne pairing in midfield, in midfield super, super often. I think it's more likely that um, we'll see Graylish playing on the left side of an attacking three. I just think that that having two out-and-out number 10s, or two a, a three-man midfield with two players who are looking to play as a number 10, puts too much defensive responsibility on that third midfielder, the one who's playing deeper, the holding mid. Especially in an Arsenal team where that third midfielder is Thomas Partey, who is class, he's a class midfielder. We saw it at Atletico Madrid. But we've yet to see that with Arsenal. Now, because of that, we rarely saw last year uh, uh, an Arsenal team that started both Emil Smith-Rowe and Martin Odegaard, despite them playing in the same, in the, with the same club for 
for six months. And that's what I really wanted to, to go back and find out is how often did these guys actually play together in 2020, 2021? What can we go off of? And the truth is that there's not a whole lot that we can go off of. The two did play together. Um, two of the only matches that they played and started together were the two legs of the, the Europa League semifinal tie against Villarreal. We saw Smithrow and Odegaard both start both of those matches. But the reason why they were able to is because in the first leg, there was no Aubameyang or Lacazette. In the second leg, there was no Lacazette. So we saw in the first leg, Emil Smith-Rowe played as a false nine, not as a midfielder. And in the second leg, Odegaard played as a left wing with Aubameyang Central and, and uh, uh, Smith-Rowe, excuse me, as the low number 10. So we really haven't seen Arsenal with both Smith-Rowe and Odegaard playing together in midfield. But when you bring in a player like Odegaard, you don't bring him in to sit on the bench, and you're certainly not going to put Emil Smith-Rowe on the bench consistently in favor of Martin Odegaard. But when you've got Aubameyang and Lacazette, and, and arguably Nicola Pepe and Bakaya Saka taking on, the, on the, the right side of an attacking three, you don't have those options available to you. You can't play Odegaard regularly on the left side of an attacking three. You can't play Emil Smith-Rowe as a false nine in, unless you want to drop out Aubameyang or Lacazette. Maybe you do if you're Mikel Arteta, but I think that, that there are better options elsewhere. So how could we see an Arsenal team with Odegaard and with Emil Smith-Rowe line up? The first is by playing in that 4-3-3 with both of them playing as number 8 slash number 10s and saying all the prayers in the world for Thomas Partey or Granit Xhaka or whoever that third midfielder is. Now you think that might be a bit negative in, in midfield, but the, the pro obviously is that both Odegaard and Smith-Rowe get to take on relatively central positions. They both get to be in the middle third, in the attacking third, creating chances. So that's an argument of, well, maybe it's one of those concede twice, score three arguments where, yeah, we're, we're giving up something defensively in midfield. We're probably going to lose that on possession. We're probably going to going to face a few a few more shots if we, we play with the midfield with two number 10s. But you're going to be that much better in the the possession and the, the attacking phases of the game because you've now got these two very creative players. Now, we could theoretically also see one of Odegaard or Smith-Rowe play as part of an attacking three. And again, we saw that last year when Abemiang and Orlacazette were not fully fit. But there are ways to do it with both Abemiang and Lacazette in the team that isn't taking away a whole lot. The one losing out is likely Nicola Pepe on the, the right side of an attacking three. You would probably put Odegaard over there, I would say. Yeah, you probably put Odegaard over on the right side of, uh, of the attacking three, and Nicola Pepe misses out. You probably are then forced to play Bakaya Saka as a wing back as part of a back five or a back three, depending on however you interpret that. That is an option to have Odegaard on the right side of an attacking three. It includes a Bemming on the left. It includes Lagazette in the middle with Emil Smith-Rowe as the lone number 10, which is a position that he would thrive in. And that's also something that I think would be relatively seamless for not just Odegaard, but for this Arsenal team as a whole. Because even when Odegaard was playing as the number 10 with Arsenal, he still liked to, to get wide, take on wide positions, take on wide defenders, and put in crosses. So playing him on the right side of an attacking three lets him continue to do that. He's still playing largely the same role that he played when he was with Arsenal a season ago. But you're still keeping three midfielders. The shape allows him to stay there. That, that, that attacking three with Odegaard on the right, using that shape allows Odegaard to stay in that position, which assumes a lot of the same responsibilities that he took on a season ago. Obviously, the one missing out is Nicola Pepe, who, say what you want about Pepe, a massive, massive price tag coming into the Emirates, has largely underperformed. I think Nicola Pepe is a player who's going to take a pretty big step this season. Again, strictly hypothetical, has nothing to do with the question about Martin Odegaard. Well, maybe it does, because we're, we're discussing how the team would line up 
and Nicola Pepe is not in it, but maybe you'd prefer to see Pepe over on the right side, entering his third season with Arsenal, primed to take a big step uh, as part of an Arsenal side that I think a lot would would hope has improved on a season ago. And then the other way, of course, is Smith-Rowe on the left, Aubameyang or Lacazette in the middle, and then Nicola Pepe over on the right, but that drops out one of your two strikers. Is that something that you're really willing to do? You do get both of your creative midfielders in the team to an extent, but you're losing out on, on one of your two real premier finishers, goal scorers, composed players in front of the net. There is a way to have Odegaard and Smith-Rowe both playing in midfield, though, without driving your defensive midfielder insane. And it would require some some tactical evolution. It would require something that Arsenal we haven't seen from at all. But it's not entirely impossible, and it's because of Mikel Arteta's previous tutelage under Pep Guardiola. It would involve taking a page out of Pep Guardiola's book. And that is when you're in possession, letting Odegaard and Smith-Rowe get forward, get into the final third, do what they want, but then instead of having your one lone midfielder just by himself in the middle of the park, bringing a, bringing a, a fullback into midfield, kind of playing that Joaquin Silla role that, that, that Pep, Guardiola, Pep Guardiola uses with Manchester City, bringing a fullback into midfield and having him play as, as another pivot, another player that, that can be used to create passing patterns and allow Arsenal to keep possession of the ball for longer. And I don't think, truthfully, I don't think this is totally impossible or unfeasible. A, because, yes, Arteta studied that under Pep Guardiola when he was Guardiola's assistant at Manchester City. But also, B, you don't need some world-beating superstar right-back to play that role. You just need a right-back, you need a defender who is comfortable on the ball, a player who, who completes his passes and is difficult to dispossess. And at first glance, you're like, oh, well, Arsenal have, have nobody who can who can play that role. They have their their defense is is in need of some help. And you're not going to have that be Kieran Tierney, obviously, because you'd rather him stay wide and put crosses in, because that's his best attribute. But even if it's not Tierney, Arsenal still do have two fullbacks who complete passes at, at an above average rate for, for wide defenders, who are very difficult to to dispossess relative to other wide defenders. And those players are Callum Chambers and Hector Bellerin, two players who who take plenty of flack and understandably so. But when it comes to completing passes and keeping the ball, Callum Chambers and Hector Bellerin are actually both well above average compared to other fullbacks. And that's why I think that's a role that one of those two could play. Obviously, it comes with some defensive responsibility out of possession because then that's when they would retreat to the right back role. Maybe you don't trust them a whole lot out of possession, and that's certainly a fair criticism. But if you're looking for a way to keep Emil Smith-Rowe and Martin Odegaard both in the team while not compromising your attacking three of theoretically Abemiang, Lacazette, and then either Nicola Pepe or Bakaya Saka, that could be the way to do it. And it's not completely impossible because Mikel Arteta has, has, has helped train it. He, he's been in a dressing room that has used it when he was uh, with, with Manchester City and learning under Pep Guardiola, because that is, is one of the things that Guardiola has done to really modernize this Manchester City side, the way that he uses Joao Cancelo and has turned him into a true world-class defender. So the bottom line here, the bottom line of, of the discussion of how will this Arsenal look different from the Arsenal of a few months ago with Martin Odegaard, a team with, with Smith-Rowe and Odegaard has plenty of creativity. Because these are two players who, again, both play as number 10s, both like the end of the attacking third, both very good passers of the ball. It just might be difficult 
to find a way to have them playing at the same time while also keeping the defensive balance balance in the middle of the park. So there we go. Two big questions, two tactical analyses, two bottom lines. But I do want this podcast to to have some differentiation, to do some things different from episode to episode, because that's that's what makes it fun. Well, I mean, I, I would hope that the, the podcast as a whole is fun, but that's what makes things interesting from episode to episode to episode is it's different every single time. So one thing that I, I, I want to introduce for this episode is not a question, but instead take one of the big storylines that that specifically American fans are eager to, to follow and to find out about. And that's a profile. That That's a, a, whether it's a player profile or a managerial profile. And the reason why I mentioned the United States fans is because the, the who we're profiling today is Jesse Marsh's RB Leipzig. Of course, Jesse Marsh, the American coach in the Bundesliga. He was at RB Salzburg for, for a couple of years and he was fantastic there. And with Nagos moving on to Bayern Munich, uh, Marsh was the one selected to replace him at RB Leipzig. This is a side that, if you follow Bundesliga, you know they are a progressive thinking club. They, they do a lot of things tactically uh, uh, that not many other clubs in, in Europe are doing, and that's what makes them so fun and intriguing to watch. And that's not a Marsh thing or a Nagelsmann thing. That's a, a Red Bull thing. That's a th- th- this whole chain of whether it's New York Red Bulls, every Leipzig, every Salzburg, Liefering, uh, it, the entire chain of, of Rosenballsport Red Bull clubs they they just do things differently. They rely on analytics. They 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 add an extra element when when they play the game of football. And whenever you're watching a Leipzig match, especially last season under Julian Nagelsmann, you knew you were watching something different. And it seems like this year it's going to be much of the same for Jesse Marsh's Leipzig. Things didn't get off to a great start. Uh, a one nil defeat to Mainz on match day one, but they picked apart Stuttgart four nil. In their most recent match, that was yesterday at the time of recording. And even with that poor result on match day one, it looks like this version of Leipzig under the American is going to be a lot of fun. So let's break it down. So the most obvious change and the most immediate one is a structural one. It's a tactical difference. When Julian Nagelsmann was standing on the touchline for this Leipzig squad, we saw him use a couple different shapes, but the primary one and the one that he used in most big matches was some variation of a 3-4-3. Whether it was a, a 5-2-3 or a 3-4-2-1 or something, it involved three center backs and two fullbacks, wingbacks. I could get high up the pitch. And that's uh, uh, and Helinho was a massive, massive beneficiary of that. It looks like Jesse Marsh is going to change slightly and tweak that to a 4-2-3-1 while still allowing the fullbacks to advance high up the pitch. So Angelino will still play that role at left back, even if it's not specifically left wing back, we'll still see him get high up the pitch, but it's going to be a bit more structured. Instead of three center backs, we'll see usually a, a two center back pairing. It involves, it's a very progressive one, that involves Willy Orban on the, the right and Mohamed Simakan, who if you don't know who Mohamed Simakan is, uh, buy stock on him now. He is a fantastically talented center back. I thought Bayern should have bought him um, in the January transfer window of last season. He's trying to, and I say trying because it's difficult to, to do this, but he's trying to replace Deo Dupamecano, who of course has left with Julian Nagelsmann for Bayern Munich. But I think he'll do, and again, it's difficult to replace Dupamecano, but I think he'll. he's a good enough player and the skill set that he brings to this Leipzig squad He's not as physical as Upamecano is, 
But he can still ping balls all over the pitch like Upamecano. He's a progressive center back like Upamecano. I think he'll be able to fit that Deo Upamecano role very, very well, especially when he's alongside a center back in Willy Orban, who's very similar. You've then got this double pivot in midfield with what will likely be Tyler Adams and Amadou Haidara. And that is a pairing that does a whole lot, not just for the defense, but for the attacking four as well. And it all comes down to versatility. Tyler Adams specifically, because this is a player who under Julian Nagelsmann a season ago, and for the last couple seasons really, has not played consistently as a defensive midfielder, which is where he's best. That's where he, he... Grew that, That's where he played at, at Red Bulls. That's where he's played uh, at the start of his Leipzig career. And he's been bounced around. Now, that's partly because Tyler Adams is a, a fantastic just defender. He can play anywhere in the defense, whether that's as a defensive midfielder or as a fullback or even in times as part of a back three. But at the same time, that pulls him away from where he's best, which is as a, a number six. Alongside a player like Amadou Haidara, who is largely cut from the same cloth, somebody who is at his best when he's playing in midfield, when he's playing with defensive responsibility in midfield, but under Nagelsmann, and this is largely due to the presence of players like Kevin Campbell, Marcel Sabitzer, uh, was displaced in, the, in the, the Leipzig 11, was put somewhere else, was played at right back or at left back or as part of, an, of, as part of a back three or as a number eight. Uh, not so much Haidara, but, but Tyler Adams at times had to play as a number eight. These are players who are now both playing in their best spot, which is as a defensive midfielder. But the reason why it's so versatile is because they've got this background and playing in, in a variety of other places in the defense, when Leipzig are in possession and when they start streaking numbers forward and when they start start breaking their shape to confuse the defense. For example, use Angelino again. And I'm using Angelino so often because he is the poster child of this tactic. When Angelino goes on one of those streaking runs forward and plays essentially as an auxiliary winger, and puts a cross in, and there's nobody now in that left-back space, that's where Tyler Adams can drop in and occupy that space while Angelino is away, and because he's got this background as a, a wide defender, he's perfectly comfortable. And as, as on, on top of that, Haidara is also plenty comfortable as a lone defensive midfielder. So neither one of them are out of position or uncomfortable when space has been vacated. Tyler Adams can drop into that space, Haidara can, op- can operate as the lone number six, and vice versa. And that's so crucial, A, when you've got these these innovative, progressive tactics that requires an extra understanding of where you have to be and when, but also B, this is a Leipzig front four that aren't particularly adept defensively, but that's not the end of the world because you've got six players, including two defensive midfielders who can play anywhere, who are perfectly fine with defending, allowing the attacking players to focus on attacking. And that's why, that, that's one of the reasons why they can press so high and use so much energy trying to win the ball back right away. It's because they know that if the opposition breaks that first line of defense, which is the attacking four, they've got six more players behind the ball who can do the job perfectly fine. Now, that being said, my favorite part about, about this Leipzig squad, and it's not just with Jesse Marsh, it's been with Julian Nagelsmann prior. But the way they attack, the way they play in the final third, the attacking four is so much fun. And it's going to be made even better this season. And we're already seeing the fruits of it with one player specifically. And that man is Andre Silva, moved from Eintracht Frankfurt to this Leipzig squad. If there was one knock against Leipzig from a season ago, it was that they lacked that one true striker, goal scorer, poacher after the departure of Timo Werner to Chelsea. 
Um, this is a Leipzig squad that a season ago were the second worst in the Bundesliga in terms of expected goals to actual goals. They underperformed their expected goals number by seven and a half goals. That was second worst in the Bundesliga. They were also the only team in the top half of the Bundesliga table to underperform their expected goals. And say what you want about these expected statistics, expected goals, expected assists, expected points. I think, I, I personally am a big proponent of them, but I think that is is... It carries weight regardless of what you think about expected stats. The fact that Leipzig so, so completely underperformed it. They needed a striker. Using Christopher Nkunku and Danny Olmo as false nines was not working. So they went out and they brought in the third best striker in the Bundesliga behind two guys named Robert Lewandowski and Erling Holland. Andre Silva, 28 goals for Frankfurt a season ago. And he's going to be that poacher, that goal scorer. And he's going to allow the other three in the attacking three to do what they are best at, which is floating, finding space, switching positions with each other, and just giving the defense nightmares. Because Silva will be the guy who can sit in the 18-yard box and, and poach goals, or sit at the edge of the penalty area and poach goals from there. He is such a fantastic striker, and he still fits the Leipzig mold of being able to play in other positions. Not that he's going to consistently, but we've seen a couple times in the first two matches We've seen Silva move over to the left to allow Christopher Nkunku or even somebody like Emil Forsberg to take on a more central role. Like I said, he, he's just, he's going to completely, if he hasn't already, completely transform this Leipzig attack. And he has patched the biggest hole that Leipzig were facing a season ago. Now, the other three in that attacking three, it's Emil Forsberg likely to play as the number 10 following that fantastic Euros run with Sweden. Uh, but he'll look to get to the left flank and switch off with Christopher Nkunku, who plays on the left but can come central and play as a false nine. Links with Angelino well. Dominic Sobislai is a player who I'll get into a little bit later, but I am I am so, so intrigued by him. I think he's going to be fantastic now that he's finally fully fit. Unfortunately, missed the Euros with Hungary, but he's fully fit with Leipzig, and he started against uh, Stuttgart and scored two fantastic, fantastic goals. Sobislai is going to be a, a crucial piece of this Leipzig attack, I think. But what makes... This interesting is that the, there's a name that I haven't mentioned yet, and it's Marcel Sabitzer, who under Julian Nagelsmann was arguably Leipzig's most important player, wore the captain's armband, created chances, played really anywhere on the pitch, um, and we haven't seen him make a start yet. Again, it's still early days. It's only been two matches. We've seen him make some substitute appearances, but could that be because he's on the way potentially to Bayern to relink with Nagelsmann, or could it be because Jesse Marsh doesn't think that his version of Leipzig has an immediate need for him. That'll be an interesting storyline to watch. I don't have a full answer yet because, again, it's only been 180 minutes, but notable that there's been no or very little Marcel Sabitzer in Jesse Marsh's version of this Leipzig squad. So that's just a little bit on Jesse Marsh's Leipzig, the first of what will hopefully be many managerial profiles, two matches, one win, and I, I think this is a squad that you should only continue to, to, to be high on. All right, so finally, the way that I, I have envisioned ending these episodes, it's been probably, uh, what, 40, 45 minutes now. The way that I would like to end episodes like this um, are with a little bit that I like to call bet the bank. And what bet the bank is, is no, it's not related to, to gambling or betting, though I'm sure you can find plenty of, of podcasts like that on this platform. But what Bet the Bank is, is I'm a, a big, big fan of youth talent, of youth development. I love learning about who's, who's next up, who are, who are the players we're going to be talking about in three, four, five years. So Bet the Bank is a quick three, four minute segment where I give you a player who, who 
I think is is a sure thing. A player who I am unbelievably high on, who I think is heading straight for the top. And today's bet the bank player is no no hot take, no like 15-year-old from Zambia who nobody's ever heard of, though we might we might get closer to that realm as this thing progresses. I'm gonna go for for you know, not, nothing, nothing too out of the ordinary. Actually, a player who we've already mentioned, and then we'll 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 make the takes a bit hotter as we go along. But my bet the bank player for episode one again is a player who we've already mentioned on this episode, and that's Dominic Sobislai, somebody who seems to already be making so many headlines and turning so many heads, despite having only played what a handful of minutes in the Bundesliga. Uh, we knew of him at Salzburg. He was one of the best young talents outside of Europe's top five leagues at RB Salzburg. And then he makes the move to, uh, to Leipzig in, I believe it was the January window from, uh, from the 2020, 2021 season that we see Dominic Sobitzlai make that move, make that jump to one of Europe's big leagues. He stays in the Red Bull ladder and we saw him for, I suppose, with a second time in the Bundesliga against, uh, against Stuttgart, because when he made the move to Leipzig, he was hurt. We didn't see him a whole lot. And that injury, uh, so, so unfortunately, forced him to miss the European Championships. Because we saw that hungry side in the Euros, in that so-called group of death in which none of the nations advanced past the round of 16. But we saw the fits that Hungary gave all three sides. We saw them stay nil-nil with Portugal into the 80th minute. We saw them draw with world champions France. We saw them almost beat Germany on match day three. And that was Hungary without Dominic Sobislai, who was already, you can make the argument, the best player on that Hungarian national team. But as unfortunate as that was, we're finally starting to see it. Sobislai yesterday against Stuttgart scored uh, his debut Bundesliga goal, a fantastic hit from about 20 yards out. And then he scored a stunning free kick in the second half, clean through everybody. If you see the angle of, of from the far post pointing at Sobislai, I mean, that's an angle that you can watch 10, 15, 20, 50, 100 million times. Just such, such a, a, a physically and aesthetically pleasing goal from, from Dominic Sobislai. But that's no fluke. This is a player who is heading for the top. He, he's, just, he's an entertainer. I saw on Twitter people describing him as an entertainer. That's exactly what he is. He's fantastic in the final third, creates loads of chances on that right side, can play essentially a bit as well. Um, and I truthfully, I don't think there will be a whole lot of waiting on our part, there won't be a very big waiting period to see him acclimate himself with the rest of the Leipzig team. A, because he perfectly fits into what Leipzig's attacking four tries to do, but B, he's just that talented of a player. He can he can mesh himself with the squad, uh, at least I think, and what we've seen, flawlessly, especially a club that that is cut from the same cloth as the club you were just at. Salzburg to Leipzig is not the worst jump. We see many players take that jump, uh, and they implement lots of the same tactics. So Dominic Sobitzlai, my bet the bank player for episode one. He is going to the top if he's not on his way already, although he is on his way already. He's heading even further to the top, and uh, I am very, very excited to see what he's going to be able to do with this Leipzig squad that possesses a whole lot of young talent, but at the same time will be competing in Europe will be, hopefully, competing for the Bundesliga title, and Dominic Sobitzlai will play a big, big role in all of that. So that's the end of uh, of episode one. That's the end of the Tactics Room episode one. Thank you so, so much. If you got all the way to the end, thank you so, so much for, uh, for, for listening, for giving us a shot, and just for your support in general. 
I'm going to ask for you two things. The first thing is to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from, whether you're on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever. I'm going to ask you to subscribe to this one so you don't miss a single episode in the future. We're going for weekly. That might uh, that might be, be accelerated a little bit. The other thing I'm going to ask you to do is follow Breaking the Lines on Twitter at BTLVid and make sure you check out the Breaking the Lines blog breakingthelines.com. So actually, that's three things that I ask you to do. Subscribe, Twitter, and uh, and, and check out the blog. But that is uh, what this podcast is hosted by. That's where we do this podcast from. And there's a whole lot more content over there. Lots of written pieces, a lot more tactical analyses. That's the whole kind of message of, of, of the blog, the site itself, is, is diving deeper and analyzing things tactically and, and hopefully teaching you something that you didn't know before you started the article. So Check that out over on uh, over on Twitter again at BTLVid. Check out the blog BlakeBreakingTheLines.com and subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a single episode. So much that we still have to talk about, ladies and gentlemen. I want to talk a bit about Romelu Lukaku after he makes his Chelsea debut. Hopefully that'll be able to uh, be something that we talk about in episode two because hopefully he'll make his Chelsea debut against Arsenal on Sunday. If he does, that will absolutely be a story we talk about. Also, the transfer window will be coming to a close, so we'll have to discuss that. The Champions League draw is right around the corner. I'll give you some of the players that I'm most keeping an eye on, some of my young players who you may not have heard of in the Champions League this season. Whole lot of fun content still on the way. Don't want you to miss any of it. So subscribe to the podcast, follow us on Twitter, and uh, when episode two drops, you will be one of the first to know. That'll do it for me. Again, my name is Will Fowler. Thank you so much for listening. You've been tuning in to the Tactics Room, presented by Breaking the Lines.